This project was produced by Planet FM with support from New Zealand On Air. The series features 15 candid conversations with people from migrant and former refugee backgrounds, sharing their stories, their lived experience, their own perspectives and covering some sensitive topics. I'm Alina from Storio, and you're listening to Pass the Mic. Due to the global pandemic, we've recorded these conversations from the comfort of our homes. This is episode one. In this episode, I'm talking with Pok Wei Heng, and recently migrated from Singapore. Welcome, Pok. I think it would be really awesome, Pok, to dive in and start up with the classic question we ask people on this podcast is like your story. Yeah, kia ora. So my name is Park. A little bit about me, like I've spent 20 years in Singapore. My parents are Malaysian and then I, um, I've been in New Zealand for about, what, four, four years, going to five, I think. I currently am a climate change consultant at EY. Um, so I do a lot of stuff with climate change and sustainability, which is my passion. And yeah, I just joined the choir. <laughs> I do like to sing. That's quite funny. I sing the bass. So I have a high voice speaking, but I have a very low singing voice, which is odd. Let's like talk about Singapore and you growing up there. Singapore is a very controlled environment. Um, it is, it's not too much, nor too little. From someone who's not been in Singapore, they would see it as this bustling metropolis. Uh, they'd see it as extremely clean with strong laws and little corruption. And, and, and for the most part, they are right. But Singapore is also an extremely meritocratic country, which means you're judged strongly by your merit. Um, so everyone has to try to outperform each other to get the opportunities that they really want to have. So actually a lot of my a lot of my years in Singapore was dominated by studying a lot. Like that's actually a core part of, <laughs> it's actually weird to say, but it's a core part of um, the Singapore identity to fight hard to get the grades that you want. Our tuition industry is a billion dollar industry in Singapore, um, just because people are so vigorous in trying to outperform each other. There's so many layers to to to, to peel when explaining Singapore because it's such an interesting country when you're out of it. We are an Asian country. At the same time, English is our first language, whereas um, neighboring countries such as Malaysia, or Indonesia, Philippines, um, English isn't their first language, if I'm not wrong. So we grew up with this extremely strong Western mentality and yet having the balance with some really strong Asian undertones. You often have like a bit of an identity crisis when you step out of it because you're going, I'm not Western enough to fit into you know, Western society because I don't look like it. Um, but neither am I fully Asian enough because my whole upbringing was, you know, based on very strong Western norms. Yeah, we have very peculiar laws as well. A lot of countries have laws that clamp down on people's freedom. Singapore's laws are a lot more on surveillance. Surveillance, sorry. And so you're not quite sure whether what you're doing is fully right or wrong. And I think that creates a very, uh, a rather restrictive environment sometimes on uh, how you grow what you decipher as right or wrong, it becomes quite blurred. There is the law and the law is very clear, but there's kind of things like, can I express myself in this way? Uh, what would society or people think about me if I am turning up to be like this? 
a lot more on society uh, focusing their attention on you rather than you being yourself and everyone does their own thing. So, <laughs> and in terms of the values, because now living in New Zealand, which is like obviously major Western influence, <laughs> what were the values like? What was is the you know Asian Western values mix? Which ones you reckon now that you can compare like? We're more Asian and more Western, if that makes sense. I think Singapore teaches you to be very striving and to be very intellectually curious. And and so people are really good in like, well, they really are very good in science and math. Singapore is an environment that focuses so strongly on excellence. I actually didn't meet the mark in many areas. Like um, I'm, I'm not a typical, I would say, Singaporean kid. Well, most people, I was doing literature. I was doing theatre studies in high school, which really, that gave my my parents what I call an Asian heart attack because they I was crumbling all of their Asian expectations right in front of them. But actually, the fact that I had exposure to those subjects gave me the ability to be intellectually curious, which I bring over now to New Zealand. It's weird because in Singapore, intellectual curiosity is often caged, it's controlled, but what happens is in New Zealand, uh, that cage is lifted. And so your curiosity knows no bounds and you're just, it, it's an explosion. You get to, you get to feel, you get to explore so much ability to explore. So, you know, Singapore gave me a taste of it, uh, but New Zealand has given me a much larger kind of exploration of what that could be. In terms of how I see how a society should function, there's that sort of collectivism in Singapore versus that individualism in New Zealand. And, and and to be honest, I feel like coming from one country, like from a conservative to individualist society, it's tricky, but it actually helps. It helps you a lot. Like, like for me, what I actually saw was that I brought my collectivism over, but I was now more able to express myself in different ways. I could dress myself in any way and people wouldn't care. I could, I could say things and not worry about being policed um, all the time. And I feel like that's quite quite a freedom that I don't take for granted, definitely. Someone mentioned to me the other day, when we talk about things like collectivism and individualism, sometimes we don't necessarily mean in practice, like what it means for us in practice is different to what it means to someone else in practice. Could you elaborate a little bit more on what it means to you in practice? Like the collectivist culture or individualist culture? Yeah, um, well, I am no academic, so I will put my own personal spin on what collectivism is, what it means to me. Uh, well, in, in my perspective, I believe it means where society is used to, where there's a set of norms, traditions, and or invisible rules which shape a society to move as a collective body, thinking almost as a collective body, rather than um, for their own for their own individual mandate purpose or agenda. I guess why I use collectivism is because it it, it it gives this connotation that for extremely creative and unique individuals in a society to move as a collective body requires actually some degree of censorship because it, it requires you to smooth out the edges of everyone's very intense and fiery and unique personality so that everyone becomes like kind of like blob, <laughs> like a whole that is able to gel together and move forward in the unified direction. 
yeah, humans are messy. So the fact that we have societies that form that sort of behavior uh, requires quite a bit of structures, cultures to interact, to create that, that sort of, you know, unitary or uniform direction that they, that society moves towards. Yeah, <laughs> it's pros and cons. Yeah, I was going to say, interesting, right? Yeah, like the, the pros and cons, because we always talk about collectivism versus individualism as like a one or the other and one is right or one is wrong or from whichever perspective you're looking at. But it's, yeah, I like your idea of like, oh, you're, the way you're describing it, the pros and cons and what do you want to take from each culture? Fuck, tell me, because you talk about climate justice. What led you to be so passionate and work in it? What was that journey into climate justice? I think there's two lenses or, or the two, there's two perspectives I want to voice. The first was that, so my parents are very Asian. I think we've sort of established that. And they actually forced me to do accounting uh, at the University of Auckland. What they were saying was, we're going to send you overseas. You're going to do an accounting degree because we're scared for your future. And if you keep doing theatre and literature, we don't know where you're going to go. Uh, so I did an accounting degree and actually it was so interesting. I I, before I did my degree, I spent two years in the army because of conscription. And I just remember being so lost. Like I was actually sitting there going, this degree is actually going to kill me. I picked up like an accounting book and I was looking at assets, liabilities. And I was just like, this is absolutely going to drain my soul. I can already feel it. So I tried reading up different aspects of accounting, like what actually is accounting? Why do we have it? And then I looked at the most varying types of topics. I looked at Islamic finance, which is like a form of finance that follows certain, well, in my in my perspective, certain cultural norms or or religious perspectives uh, to form a form of more ethical kind of financing. And then when I looked at ethics in finance, then that brought me to sustainability uh, accounting or sustainability reporting. And then eventually that brought me to looking at sustainability, which is very much tied into climate change. So that was how I actually had this whole roundabout journey of being involved in sustainability and climate change. And that was, but it was, thank goodness I got that in my first two years, because the moment I went to New Zealand, I was adamant. I was like, I have three years to prove my worth, because in three years, if I graduate and I don't get something in sustainability, I will be forever an accountant. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that I was, I was just profoundly shook. Like I was like, this is my direction. This is what I'm going to go for. Thank goodness, like the powers that be, you know, kind of shaped that path because um, then I got into a sustainability internship with KPMG my first year, then Deloitte sustainability my second, and then now EY after I've graduated. But that was because I was so insistent. I was like, if I don't do this, I'm going to be an accountant. I'm going to be an auditor the rest of my life. I love how you went through all of the, almost all of the big four companies. Uh, and then also, yeah, that like... Um, it's so funny wanting to do not wanting to do accounting for the rest of your life <laughs> yeah yeah but this i guess like there's also the second perspective which is more of the cultural i wouldn't say revelation but the reflections i got ever since coming to new zealand like i remember being quite scared of of maori carvings when i first stepped foot into the airport i was just going like oh, this was a lot foreign. I don't know what this is. And because this is coming from someone with a very Western point of view, very used to sterility in society, everything following this kind of sterilized form of living, some suddenly seeing something that was so 
culturally significant that I had never experienced before made me go, oh, this is so new. And actually across the next two to three years, as I stepped foot into New Zealand, my fear of um, Indigenous peoples started to shift towards curiosity and then now towards allyship and advocacy. Because to me, it's like Singapore has removed all mention of our history and we place our almost beginning point in history when we learned in social studies with Sir Stanford Raffles, uh, which he was basically a British man um, that signed the treaty in Singapore that established uh, Singapore as a colony and that started our colonial days. But there was no mention about, uh, there was not much mention about what happened before that. So I grew up, I grew up essentially in a white man's world. Um, I grew up internalizing those norms because that was where essentially our history began. And I wasn't close to my Malaysian roots, let alone my Chinese roots back in China. And so I think it was, it struck me as so profound to be looking at something that was so clearly culturally relevant or rooted in the history of the country that made me go, this is, this is worth um, learning more on, or this is absolutely worth protecting. Although, you know, like how we do that is obviously a subject worthy of debate. I think that's what shifted my lens from climate change. Well, if you can tell from my turbulent journey to get into climate change as a career to climate justice. Climate justice is basically, I guess like my definition is climate change affects different populations differently. For example, if you look at it on a country level, uh, my experience in New Zealand with climate change will be very different to someone's experience in Somalia. And that can be because of war, that can be because of vulnerability of populations, access to water. And a lot of these things are actually very historical. Uh, it's because well, some countries like to get meddled in certain countries. Uh, it's because of colonization, poverty. This whole, so it's really complicated. But it's saying that one population's experience is different to another. How our cities are built, for example, there's inequitable access to even supermarkets of food. There's literal, there's a term called food deserts that basically says that if you were in West Auckland, for example, your access to a supermarket would be very different to if you were living in Epsom. You know, health outcomes affect your exposure to, to climate change. What I'm thinking as you speak is how much identity, cultural, specifically cultural, but maybe other forms of identity, is tied into climate justice work and wouldn't be wonderful if most workplaces or most um, fields could really draw from like because the cultural identity you know disabilities identity like all ties into all so intertwined with every field really that we uh, work in but as you but, but unfortunately I think currently it doesn't and so with climate with from what you were talking about it seems like there is a lot of threads around like cultural identity, uh, um, ethnic background, where people belong, how they address climate change and whatnot. And I wanted to ask your personal journey with that. Is it something, you know, like when it comes to your personal identity or whatever we want to call it, place in the world, belonging, whatever, do you reckon it has been questioned by you more when you started doing climate justice work? Like, is it something that you were trying to figure out more or less or what was that relationship like? 
It's so hard. Like, honestly, it's so it's so challenging to think of life through a climate justice lens. It's already hard enough to understand climate change. Our recent IPCC report has said this is the final, this is the final, final window. And this window is already small enough where we can't even, we can barely squeeze through it. And once this window is closed, we're going to see a lot more things just roll down over and over and over again. We're just going to get hit more and more times in, in about a decade or two. We are going to be phasing three COVID-sized shocks to our economy every single year just from climate change. That is its impact. That is its magnitude. But I think from a person of color's experience, it's very hard to communicate that in a firm that you know has a certain way of doing things. And it's really hard to articulate how diversity, equity, and inclusion considerations radically should shift how we look at climate change work. What happens is EY consults some really big corporations or government, but but you know generally really wealthy clients and what they want to do or what they want to know is what the climate risk is within their operations or within you know what affects their business. And, and I feel like we often don't have that conversation about how this affects the community, the population. Uh, we don't think about how accessible the solution is or whether this solution has been consulted with the communities where the decisions are going to be made. You know, it's like the, the solutions will help towards decarbonization. They will help towards climate mitigation. The question is for whom? Are we providing advice that is good for humankind or are we providing advice that is good for a select group of people? Um, and even within diversity and inclusion, I don't believe in, you know, the usual tokenism. You know, like the usual kind of like, oh, let's have a celebratory event. Usually these events backfire because they're putting the onus of planning and preparation on the employee that is diverse themselves, firstly. So they have less work, they have, they have less time to do work. Secondly, having someone who's diverse to explain your culture is exhausting. And so it's like, you know, it's like basically we are not, sorry, I feel like I might have like gone off topic there, but I basically think that as an organization or as a service line, um, we, we have to continue to ask ourselves pretty hard questions about who is affected by our solutions. Yeah. Hundred percent, and I mean, because you are um, engaged in diversity, equity, inclusion work at EY, as well as climate justice, and seeing those two intertwine so well. And I wonder, actually, Paul, I would love to ask you how you personally feel about the sense of identity and belonging for yourself in New Zealand, because I feel like we often, from my perspective, like I often advocate for you know diversity representation. How do we create an environment like this? And maybe I don't have enough space sometimes to actually figure out what it means for myself, what it means to belong. Well, for me, it was a journey of I'm not Asian enough to be back in Singapore. You know, like I'm, I'm, I'm already quite different. Nor am I um, Western or white enough to properly be fully integrated or assimilated within New Zealand. It almost, I think, borrows itself out to a third identity. I never got a Singapore passport. I have a Malaysian passport because the, the state 
uh, the country never wanted to recognize me as a citizen because my parents were never Singaporean. You feel like a, as we said, like a sojourner, like you feel like you're a temporary citizen migrating or shifting between different places. I find it very hard. I find it very hard to not be able to identify with any single place. What does it mean to belong somewhere? Like for you, where? how would you feel? What does it feel like to say, I belong here? When I feel safe or when I am able to be growing, when I'm able to share my stories in a way that isn't censored and simply seen for what it is. Do you reckon you had moments like that, like in your years in New Zealand now, places or people or situations that made you feel like you belong? You know, it's like, it's, it's, I think it's, it gets harder to fit into spaces the harder you think about it uh, or the harder, or the more you know yourself. Like I am very sure about my work in climate change or climate justice. And that excludes a certain pie, a group of people in the pie. I, but also because I'm so insistent to be myself. <laughs> and it's almost a new chapter for me as a migrant, as a fresh new migrant, to be in new spaces, to expand, you know, the circle of friends that I have again. I find that quite, um, it's quite challenging because, you know, like most people, for example, at work, they have their family to go back to. I don't know if my family's not here. They have friends that they've known since high school. I don't have any of those friends. And most of the people in university can be quite transactional. You know, you were there when you studied a paper together. One or two of them are friends that have really been there throughout the years. But there's nothing quite as deep yet. Not just me, but everyone have interviewed so far. I feel like it's been such an interesting thread of exactly that those conversations to different ex- um, extents because I feel like if you're born in the country still you have so many connections just by proxy of being around particular group of people like schoolmates or whatever for a long enough time that that connection kind of we talked about diversity and climate and identity what I would love to hear from you is what do you imagine a better brighter you know in whatever cheesy way we can take it, world might look like. What needs to happen? I think one thing that's specific for New Zealand and and probably within the corporate world is that firstly, we need to understand that diversity, equity and inclusion, it's not a token festival event. It's something that actually deeply impacts business outcomes. uh, And it leads to better ways of thinking. For example, what I've noticed is that if you were... Southeast Asian, like I'm Southeast Asian, is that I noticed that a lot of us actually, we like to, we, we err a bit more on the side of conservative as compared to Pākehā and Westerners that tend to err on the side of being more outspoken. They like to speak up. They like to position themselves as leaders and, and raise the first comment. And what happens is I notice in meetings that sometimes people of colour like to take a back step and they like to actually take more time to think through what they're saying. And I noticed that it, it leads to different business outcomes because for me, I take my time to piece together what I'm thinking. In my first thought process, I, like, I let my thought process kind of ruminate. And when I think of diversity, equity, and inclusion, I actually think of the way we interact and the way we engage with people. And that, to me, is actually a strength because while some people are covering, you know, they, aren't, they ask whatever's on their mind, they're enthusiastic, I also ask really thoughtful questions. And when you combine both of them, it leads to really good business engagement results. I don't see the fact that that I take my time to answer, 
you know, like, which I think is motivated by my culture and the setting I'm growing in, I don't see that as a bad point. I think that's an absolute plus point. And that is what, that is one aspect of what I mean by DE&I, that we actually start to embrace the way our culture has nurtured us to respond to things. Another thing is, as well as allyship, and that's something I'm looking into. And there was this course that I was on recently. They had a really interesting take on allyship. Allyship seems to be seen as, you know, let's say, for example, your brother's gay, for example, and then you kind of go, oh, I fully support you. I love you for who you are. And people say, oh, that's amazing. You're being a great ally. And that's actually not being an ally. That's called being human. That's called not being a dick. And I think what's really important is seeing that allyship is a situation where you notice that you are in a more socially acceptable position than the other. You notice that the other person um, is facing less equitable outcomes, be it because of their race, their gender, or their sexuality. And you're putting your social capital on the line to speak up for them and reach out and offer opportunities for them. It requires sacrifice, and it also requires you to dwell in discomfort. But DE&I work is not a token festive event. DE&I work was always about creating comfortable dwellings of discomfort. You have to get used to that discomfort, and that's when you start closing the gap. And that is what I think needs to really happen for like a better New Zealand and a better migrant relationship with Māori. <laughs> I would love to hear more talk about that around better relationship with Māori. What are some maybe lessons you mentioned before around your climate justice work and how tightly it's tied to Indigenous work, I guess? What would be some of your learnings, maybe some, something that you've learned in your, in your years or your work around that? Like migrant, what is our place as migrants? What are you, yeah. I think firstly, like as a disclaimer, I'm very new to the scene. Like this is like this is like my fourth year in New Zealand. And so I'm very, very new to this idea of indigenous relations. Uh, but also Tawiwi and Pakeha working in partnership with Māori and Tangata Moana and trying to understand what that looks like. So it's still a journey that I'm I'm on. But what I think is really important, the first principle is is to do no harm. A lot of us like to frame our lives in how can we create the max, most maximum impact. And that can be, I want to create a $10 million startup or like, I want to create a unicorn business or, you know, I want to impact a thousand lives. But when, when really like if, if our intent is to engage with Indigenous peoples, I think for me, the, the starting point is kind of like going, to what extent am I supposed to be part of this project? to what extent should I be engaged in this and to what extent can I create harm by my very own participation and involvement. I see that as there's a certain space which is for Tawiwi and Pakeha. We can talk within our lived experience and I feel that we actually need to be much more clearer on speaking from our lived experience and understanding that. There is then a space which I think Indigenous people's expertise should be respected, their tikanga should be respected, um, and that's a space I'm continuously learning from. And then there is a grey zone. There's a grey zone in the middle where I think both 
both sides kind of built bridges to meet in the middle. But how that forms is often a complicated, if not kind of like, it's a very multifaceted and quite a complex process. It requires a lot of whakafanangatanga. It requires a lot of building rapport and bond before actually getting the work done. And it requires a lot of humility on the side of Pākehā and Tawiwi to be corrected, not take it personally, learn from it and to move on. And I've been corrected so many times. You know, to any Tawiwi or Pākehā, I'd say, a lot of us like do face some kind of discomfort when engaging, when thinking of a project and we're like, oh, how do we engage with Indigenous peoples? Yeah, it's, it's, it's important that we speak only from our experience and, and notice that, you know, when you speak from your own experience, you're much less likely to make false assumptions about people, but also to see it as a form of strength that whilst we learn from Indigenous peoples' cultures, their customs, their tikanga, we ourselves have our own culture and we ourselves have our own innate value that we can bring to this conversation and to not shy away from it and not to see it as kind of like not to put indigenous peoples on a pedestal but rather see it as a kind of a form of equal partnership where we both bring kai to the table we both bring our relationships to the table and we both engage in discussions at the table together Love it, love it, Pok. And I wanted to ask you to expand on one point because something that I've recently been working on a lot at my job is Fokofanangatanga as a tool of commitment, relationship building, and everything else. Could you please explain to people who might not know what Fokofanangatanga means? Like, what is it? I might not be able to explain the concept itself, but let me perhaps, I guess, try to give it a whack on what it means to me. Uh, Fokofanangatanga carries connotations of kinship i think it's a zone of where the focus is on connection the focus is on sharing stories on what brings you here to the space and it's about establishing the bonds before we do the work because once we ascertain or like once we are rooted in our own humanity before we engage in work our humanity drives our outcomes rather than letting you know our selfish desires drive the outcome i think this is something i i'm starting to learn right now so i'm reading a book the articles was talking about how we built kinship with people with different learned abilities or disabilities and how our world often can be quite governed with 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 how we speak how fluency uh, affects how conversations go. I think it's interesting to think of a perhaps a different dimension of whakafanangatanga, which is if we're not able to articulate using our word, what would it look like? And and they were talking about how they engaged with people with kind of like different abilities to understand sexuality by uh, activities such as collaging, where you know they would have a word called sexy, and then like what would you what pictures would you put to uh, attach you know uh, your understanding of sexy? And it turns out people with different learned abilities are perfectly capable of understanding these words. They just might not have the vocabulary in terms of spoken word to articulate that. And I think like that's something I took away from in the article because I was like, wow, fakafanangatanga might perhaps not only be about talking. There are different ways to connect. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Pog. I feel like we've covered and talked about such beautiful topics that almost all require their own podcast. To round us up, I would love to ask you some quick fire questions. We have four. The first one is about food. What's your favorite, maybe Singaporean, maybe Malaysian dish, a meal? Uh, I'm currently craving a very 
a simple sounding dish called fish soup. And it's basically you have a, a really clean, beautiful broth. You have fish slices in there, tofu, vegetables, and it's something that I think is quite healthy, um, but also quite nourishing. If you were the main character in a movie or a TV show, what would it be or what would it be about? I'd really like to see an Asian version of Queer Eye. Uh, and one not told from a purely Western perspective. If you could propose a policy to a New Zealand government, parliament, or organization, maybe like a policy to implement in organizations, what would it be? A titidity informed approach to migration, one which understands the increasing demand for migration, but also respecting Māori as tangata titidity and essential partners, especially in migration, because migration can significantly compromise um, our relationship as articulated in Titiriti. And last question, Park, is what makes you feel like a badass? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> um, the, the stories I hold, the experiences I have, I've gone through so much and I think like everyone's gone through so much. Um, I believe that all of the podcast interviewees have amazing stories to tell and I believe that is enough. I don't think that I need a significant achievement or an action to prove my worth anymore. I believe that I am worthy by myself now um, as I exist. And I think that makes me a better. Thank you. That was Pock. If you haven't already, check out the 14 other incredible conversations in the series. Share, subscribe, send to someone who might benefit from either feeling seen or learning more about ethnic experiences in Aotearoa. These conversations are a collaboration of Belong Aotearoa, Planet FM, Storio, and Sport Waitakere. You can find the links to those excellent organizations in the bio. Thank you to our funder, Auckland Council Regional Development Fund, and to New Zealand On Air. Mm-hmm.